First Corinthians 15, we're going to be focusing on the passage from verses 35 through 49, but I'd like to pick it up in verse 1 through verse 11 and then skipping over to 35. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, He was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to this present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more and abundantly than they all, yet not I but the grace of God which was in me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Verse 35. But someone will say, How are the dead raised up? With what body do they come? One, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. It is There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and after, afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the first, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Let us pray. Dear Lord, unless you send the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds and our hearts, these words will but fall. But we know that you have sent your word forward that it would not be in vain, but you will send it forth with power so that it will not return into you void. Send your Spirit, O Lord, I pray, that you would illuminate this Word, 
Send Your Spirit that You would quicken our hearts. Send Your Spirit in the preaching of the Word that You will stir us and encourage us and challenge us. We pray that You would energize us, Your people, to do the work of the kingdom. We pray if there is one here that does not know You savingly, that You will quicken that heart in the Word today, knowing that there is victory in Christ. Grant, Lord, that Your Spirit would attend the application that should accompany the preaching, and that You will apply the message to each one of us individually, each one of us families, and us as a corporate body. Be pleased. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Paul was addressing the church at Corinth who had many issues and problems. He began the the whole epistle by identifying the divisions that were going on within the church. There were some that were following after Peter, some after uh, or Cephas, some after Paul, some after Apollos, some after Christ. And we find from this one chapter that there was also heresy that was going on within the church that some denied that the resurrection actually ever happened. In fact, they denied even that there was such a resurrection. Probably some Sadducee influence into the church there. But we, in this chapter, see Paul, by the power of the Spirit, defending the resurrection and thereby concluding, because of the resurrection, our labor is not in vain. He implies in that statement that he closes this chapter with that therefore there is labor and work to do in light of the resurrection. And that we must be about the work of the kingdom and growing because Christ is risen. There are principles found in the resurrection that are quintessential to the gospel, not just merely the propositions, but the gospel life and the worldview that we Christians ought to have and by which we ought to be living. In this passage of Scripture, God reveals the nature of the resurrection to us. The nature, the, 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 the character of it, the, the essence of it. And from this we learn principles of gospel living. I'd like to first of all somewhat unpack the the passage before us, and I'd like to to put that in light of some applications so that we might then know how we ought to live. Let me draw your attention back to the text, because Paul begins by asking a rhetorical question in verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? Now, he is answering or making an apology, not not an I'm sorry apology, but a defense of the resurrection in light of those who would say that there is none. And then he's anticipating another question right after he defended, yes, there indeed is a resurrection. It has been established, it has been seen, and Jesus is living. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? And they're asking the very nature of the resurrection. And what Paul seeks to do then is he illustrates his answer, first of all, with two analogies. 
And then he's going to share the analogies with us, and then he's going to draw the conclusion after the analogy. He's going to argue from something that is known to something that is unknown, so that that which is unknown can be made known by the illustrations. The first illustration he chooses is the dying seed analogy, found in verses 36 through 38. Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive until it dies, or unless it dies. In what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each one its own body. First of all, he, he tells us this dying seed analogy. It is not anything that's foreign at this point. We remember Jesus speaking back in John chapter 12, just prior to his taking the disciples into the upper room, having that discourse with them. He illustrates that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, that it will not bring forth fruit. But if it so falls into the ground and dies, it brings forth a harvest. So Paul's picking up that analogy. And he says, first of all, that which is sown into the ground dies. When a seed goes into the ground, it organically is reorganized from a mere seed and it grows into a plant. Seeds remain seeds until they are planted into the ground and are thus organically reorganized through whatever means that seeds reorganize and get water and nutrients and light and heat and whatever. We, we know as of recently there was seed that supposedly was found in the pyramids of a pharaoh because oftentimes and when they were burying pharaohs, they would bury the pharaoh with food so the pharaoh in his afterlife could have nourishment. And so according to their pagan uh, theology, they would put wheat in with the Pharaoh's tombs. Well, some of this wheat was taken that it was supposedly about 4,500 years old. Dates about 2,500 B.C. It would have been there when Abraham went to Egypt. It would have already been there in the time of Joseph storing up the grain when Moses delivered the children out of Israel. They took some of this grain and they planted it and the, the wheat actually germinated and grew. But it stayed in seed form all those many years until it was put into the ground and it died. And it says in verse 37 that that which is sown into the ground is not the final outcome of what it shall be. Verse 37, and what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but you sow the seed. And then verse 38, it reveals that for each body, or each seed, a body is formed for it specific to the nature of that seed. You don't get a peach tree by going and planting apple seeds. So each seed organically is related to the final outcome to which it will produce. Now there is the dying seed analogy, but then secondly, he gives us the analogy of differing bodies. Verse 39 through 41, it says not all flesh is the same. There are some flesh of men, there are some flesh of animals, some of birds and some of fish. There's also 
terrestrial bodies and celestial bodies. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. Now, that should not be confused as being bodies of spiritual realm like angels. Angels do not have bodies. It's speaking about uh, an earthly analogy going from something that is known to something that is unknown. So he makes it very clear. Right? So you got the sun and the moon and the stars, and each one has its own different kind of body, and each one actually is different from glory to glory. So he makes this analogy. Now, Paul was going to draw his conclusion based upon the dying seed analogy and the differing body analogy, and he's going to make his point. And his point he's going to bring out in verses 42 and following. There is a difference in the bodies that we now know tainted by sin and our resurrected bodies that are prepared for glory. And the key word in verse 42 is imperishable or incorruptible. So also the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. The previous illustrations were to teach that the subject matter regarding the nature of the resurrection was something that is true regarding our resurrection. Our resurrection, we are sown in corruption, but we are raised to incorruption. The bodies in which we have in this life, you each came into this world corrupted by the sin, by defilement, your bodies themselves, your physical bodies, are not fit for the presence of the Shekinah glory of God. We now can be only in the Shekinah glory presence of God through the mediation of Jesus Christ. And He is there today bodily present with God in that glory. And so in Him, we also are in that presence. But these bodies are not fit. The seed, the illustration of sowing, comes right over into the nature of our resurrection. Because it is in our death that these bodies are like that seed. They're put down into the ground. And when these bodies die, our spirit goes to be with the Lord. But there is one day a great hope because there's a reorganization organically, gloriously, that God raises us up and that we in body and spirit are made spiritually fit for the Shekinah glory and presence of God. We are sown in dishonor, but we are raised in honor. We are sown in the weakness of the flesh, corrupted by sin, but we are raised in the power of God. Now, what he is doing here, I think, is something very important for us to grasp. He is identifying a natural body and a spiritual body, and I want to slow down to clarify a few things. Verse 44, it says, 
It has sown a natural body. It has raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Now, when we think about a natural and spiritual body, what Paul is not doing is he is not contrasting something that is visible with something that is invisible. Paul is not putting at odds that which is is intangible with something that is tangible. Spiritual does not mean in the absence of physical. And so we have to be very careful to know really the nature of our resurrection. What Paul is not doing is he is not making a contrast. There was an early heresy in the church called docetism. And in, that comes from the word doceto, which means to seem like. And the nature of this heresy was that Jesus did not really come in bodily form and flesh and blood, but He only seemed like He did. He was spiritual. From that we also have forms of Gnosticism, which, which has a dualism that depreciates the physical realm and appreciates the spiritual realm. It adores the invisible, intangible spirit world while it depreciates and devalues the physical world. And in today's mindset, oftentimes even among evangelicals, we do the same things. The body itself is a part of the goodness in which God has created the physical world. And in the days of creation, He looked and He says, Behold, day one, it's good. Behold, day two, it is good. Three, four, five, and six, until He makes man out of dust, breathes into Him the breath of life. I do not believe what is going on here is a contrast between Adam and Christ. Oh, he did that earlier. But here, I believe that something else is going on. The body and the spirit are so inseparable that one affects the other in a mysterious way. Today, we are all caught up in certain fads and in a certain mindset of of wanting health, and we live in kind of this health mentality. Some of the saints of old who would, who, would, who would look at their bodies as a burning candle to burn brightly at the torch for the name of Jesus Christ would burn their lives out for the sake of the kingdom. They would not appreciate too much sometimes our mindset. There's all sorts of Christian fad diets and all sorts of health issues and all sorts of things that we can focus on when when clearly the Scripture says the kingdom is not eating and drinking. Now, I'm not depreciating the value of good health at all. But sometimes I think we look in the wrong places. 
Body and spirit are so inseparable that if your spirit is sick, your body will follow. You want long life and longevity, children? Obey your parents in the Lord, and you will live long upon the earth. You want to live with joy and happiness and freedom and with good health? Adults, don't worry but trust Christ and stand upon His promises. Worry and anxiety causes lots of health issues, but trusting in the Lord is victory over them all. Now, body and spirit are so inseparable in such a way that we really don't have a firm understanding. But Paul was saying that spiritually he is made alive, but there's still this tabernacle that adores, adorns me, and I just am ready to get rid of this tabernacle laden still with the residue of sin. It is our spirit that is now in the presence of God, worshiping and fit for that worship, through the renewal of the Holy Spirit, but our bodies are not. Our glorified bodies, which will be resurrected up in the day of Christ, will be fit for the eternal praise of God. Now here's something that's very important. As we grow in our sanctification we grow in a progress in our understanding of praise and adoration of God. We must grow in our sanctification in a mindset that we must grow in our worship. If we see or if we understand that our sanctification in our current life finds its end in glorification. And if we understand that glorification is fitting our bodies for the eternal praise and worship of God, then we should understand that as we grow in our sanctification, that our growth ought to be leading us toward the worship of God. Remember in John chapter 4, when Jesus tells the woman at the well, He says, God is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and truth. For such the Father seeks. If you view your sanctification, your growing in the knowledge and grace of Christ, if you view your sanctification in any other terms than making you more fit, for the worship of God, you're on the wrong path in your thinking. As one preacher said succinctly, he said, the minister's purpose is to grow people to enjoy true spiritual worship and to grow in it. Now there's an important principle that's going on in this passage, and it, it is a contrast not with natural meaning material and spiritual meaning immaterial because that would make nonsense out of the whole resurrection. Paul reaffirmed in the, the, the Philippian epistle that his greatest joy was not merely to be absent from the body and present with the Lord as he reiterates in 2 Corinthians. 
He says, you know, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, for me to go on is far better, but that is not the end of my hope. Philippians chapter 3, he clarifies, it is living in the resurrected body along with Jesus Christ in the presence of God. The Scripture goes on to tell us that our resurrection will be after the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. He now says in verse 47, The first man was of the earth made of dust. The second man is of the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. As is the heavenly man, so also those who are heavenly. As we have been born in the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Christ's identity with Adam reveals the true nature of the resurrection. Notice here, I do not believe there's a contrast going on, but I believe an identity and a transformation. First of all, the identity with Adam implies that some things in the resurrection are going to remain familiar. And secondly, the transformation in Christ implies a glorious transformation of those familiar things. Glorification follows closely with the analogy of creation. Let me illustrate. From Genesis chapter 1, we see that God makes things on the first three days. He makes things in a rather crude way, which on days four through six, He takes what He made on the first three days and glorifies them into another state. So, for instance, on day one, He creates light, and He separates the light from the darkness. So there's the rather natural form. But on day four, He takes the light and He organizes it and He glorifies it into sun, moon, and stars. On the second day of creation, He makes the firmament and He separates the firmament from above, from the firmament below, and He, he creates the heavens and He separates the celestial and the terrestrial bodies in a very natural and kind of crude form. But on the fifth day, which corresponds, he then populates that heaven and earth with the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and he populates it and he glorifies the second day's creation. On the third day of creation, he then grows the herbs and, and the trees and the grass, and he grows that and yet corresponding to the sixth day where he glorifies it in the creation of man, the one who was to till the garden. For when he was reiterating the creation of the sixth day, he says, for there is no man yet to till the garden. And so he creates man as a glorified state of that third day, and then he sets him upon the earth. And so we have a natural state and a glorified state. There's an analogy of redemption there, because in the fallenness of man, there is a natural fallen state that if left alone would just be perishing under the wrath of Almighty God. 
But now in Christ, we have been transformed, awaiting yet that further organization of our glorious bodies in which we will enjoy a glorious new heaven and new earth. Adam, if you will recall, was made from the earth for the earth. Woman was made from the man for the man. And here we have implied that we as Christians are made from the body of Christ for the body of Christ. And that's what we are reading in that development in verses 47 through 49. It seems that our glorified bodies will actually be made from Christ's own body for His own body. When Christ became a man, He clothed Himself in flesh and blood. His earthly body was really still identified with the dust of the ground. But in His resurrection, His dust of the ground body, after the likeness of Adam, was thus transformed and glorified. And because this has been glorified, it has been changed and transformed... And He becomes the firstfruits of our resurrection. He walked in our path. He is the pioneer who traversed the path and made the path. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He walked the path that we now walk. He walked through the persecutions. He walked through the law. He obeyed the law. And now we follow after Him. We have to trust Christ in our death, just like Christ had to trust His Father through His death. And through the joy of, that was set before Him, He endured the cross, just like through the joy of the glorification, we endure the tribulations here on earth. And through many tribulations, we shall enter the kingdom of God. But see... Here is Christ identifying with Adam, with us, with our being made of dust and dirtness, and then glorified in the resurrection, so that in the resurrection we're glorified dirt, with new transformed bodies. And the whole earth now, it says in the Scriptures, is waiting for this glorious transformation which will be complete at the return of Christ. See, when Adam fell, dirt fell. When Adam fell, all of creation fell. But when Christ rose from the dead, the victory was over all of the earth and the kingdom of God has come down and it is triumphing over all of the land. And so the land promise is for the whole earth to be reclaimed by the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the resurrection. Now let me make some applications. First of all, Christ's resurrection affects all of creation. 
the birds are singing his praises. And don't miss it. Listen to the wind. See the beauty of this season. See the new life that springs up. See the story that is being pictured in front of you this time of the year of resurrection in nature, awaiting for that glory. Christ came to restore Eden and paradise. He did not come to start all over, but to take original creation which had been fallen, the original creation which was originally good that had been fallen, and now He's restoring it, redeeming it, and will glorify it. And there will be some familiarity with what we now know. Secondly, since the resurrection of Christ, the kingdom has been set up on earth and it will grow. The kingdom is not waning. Islam will not reign. And there is a cultural advancement here on earth in the power of the gospel. And we must be busy about taking back the culture for the name of Jesus Christ. The gospel power has been delivered to us. And it affects not only how we think, it affects how we live, it affects how we spend money, it affects how we are involved in the economy and in the politics and the government, it affects how we raise our children, it affects how we educate our children. There is not a single area of life the gospel power in the kingdom does not touch. And we must claim it all for the sake of Jesus Christ. If we are very deliberate about that, there is going to be a lot available to us if we stand upon the promises. It affects how we farm. It affects how we sing. It affects how we create music. It affects our art. It affects the way we work and labor if we do it deliberately in the name of Jesus because the way we do our work has everything to do also with the work. Truly, beauty, truth, and goodness are to grow in the power of the gospel through us. When we pray, Lord, thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying that the kingdom would reign over every realm and that in our lives we would be obedient just like the angels are perfectly obedient in heaven and that we might see his kingdom flourish. That cultural advancement will begin with Christ-centered, God-glorifying, Spirit-filled worship. It will begin. The greatest need the church and the world have today is a culture of worship to permeate society. That's why it's so important to place corporate worship at the pinnacle of your priority list. That is why it is important for you to place worship and to cultivate it in your homes every day you live. Our glorified state is to fit us for the eternal praise of God, and now is the time to begin our fitness training.
But third, I want us to consider this last application. There is a connection between God's original creation and the glorified earth. See, the whole analogy of the seed comes to light here. The seed dies and is planted, but that seed has characteristic. That seed has something very... If that is an apple seed, it will produce apples. There is an organic tie or relationship between that which is sown and that which is raised. There is a connection, an organic connection between the life we now live and the works with which we, that the works that we do. There is a organic connection with that, with that glorified and eternal state to which we go. I used to think to myself, Lord, if we are all going to be glorified, what does it matter what I do now? We're all going to be the same in the end. As I pondered over that for years, wondering, seeing some people giving their lives to the study of of music. I'm thinking of a particular friend who trained most of his life for music to play for the glory of God. And I began to ponder that and think, you know, will all of that just be washed in the slate, cleaned out at glorification? But the Scripture says there is a connectivity between the organic matter in this life to that which will become in the eternal state. And I believe that the Scripture clearly reveals an organic unity between the work, the labors, the character that we do now with our eternal and glorified state. All of our works that we do in the name of Jesus, in the strength of the Holy Spirit, for the glory of God, that will last. The art we paint, the music we create, the homes we build, the gospel life that we cultivate, the relationships we establish, the good works we do, will all have lasting value. Therefore, Paul concludes this entire passage, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We serve a risen Savior. And because He lives in bodily form, being the first fruits of your resurrection, you now so live in light of that, your labor is not in vain. Folks, we have work to do. We have work for the kingdom to do here in this community. We have work of the kingdom to do in our homes. Let us be deliberately about that work for the sake of Christ, because that labor will not be in vain. And we will enjoy the fruit of it for all of eternity in the grace of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for the promise and the assurance of our resurrection because we know our Lord has been risen from the dead. He ever lives to intercede for us who seek Him by faith. 
And Lord, how thankful we are that we have promised not to only be with You in spirit, but to be and dwell with You here on the earth glorified in glorified bodies, enjoying once again tilling Your garden, enjoying Your presence, walking upon this earth in righteousness. Granted, O Lord, Lord Jesus, so come. Come quickly, we pray. Grant us the grace to be the gospel light. Give us wisdom and discernment how to live in the light of the resurrection. Energize our spirits that we might with all the more zeal labor for the gospel and not grow weary in well-doing. Grant, O Lord, a defeat over all of our enemies that we would not be discouraged with the, the trials that we face, but we might see victory and with all the more strength, labor for the sake of the gospel. And we pray you would raise up our children to be warriors, strong warriors, for the name of Jesus and for the sake of your kingdom. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.